please be advised that the contents of the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales, the series podcast. Today from the Grave Tales, Queensland's Great Southwest book, The Land of Lost Children. We begin the story with two little girls who are attracted by water lilies in a pond at Walloon near Ipswich. Their drowning inspired Henry Lawson to write his classic 1891 poem, The Babies of Walloon. With so much of our art, music and literature sharing the stories of missing youngsters, this story asks the question, is Australia the land of the lost children? Christopher? Well, certainly by the amount of literature, poems, music that has been written about that particular subject, you'd have to say it's high on the consciousness. And there's no wonder, really, because by the time Lawson wrote that poem about the two little girls who disappeared in Walloon near Ipswich, there'd been hundreds and probably thousands of children of settlers who had suffered the fate of those two little girls, that they got lost in the bush. These people came to this country. They had no idea of the danger of floods and fires and spiders and snakes and creeks rivers dams exactly Uh, and the children were often the victims of that well before we look at the missing early children right up till children that are missing to this day let's start with the babies of Walloon who are they what is that story the babies of Walloon were two little girls by the surname of Broderick, Bridget and Mary, aged nine and six. And they lived in the little town of Walloon near Ipswich, where their father was what's known as a lengthsman. What's that? Well, that's someone who's responsible for a piece of road or railway line that is kept serviceable. And their father had probably a couple of kilometres for which he was responsible. He had to keep the grass down, Mm. make sure it looked neat and tidy, make sure the trains could get through and there were no problems. So that's what he did. And for that, he earned the princely sum of six or seven shillings a day, about $45 a day in today's money. That's not a bad salary probably in those days, though. Yeah, $45 a day. I assume this was a small town then. I assume everybody knew everybody. In the years when this happened, I think the population of Walloon was about 50. And so the Broderick family was very well known, as everyone would have been to everyone else in a place that small. So what were the little girls doing to have met this fate? What happened? Well, the Broderick family used to get their butter from a bloke who lived just up the road from them, and they would regularly send two of their five children up to collect the butter. This particular afternoon, the two that went were Bridget and Mary, and they simply didn't come back. The Brodericks obviously were very concerned. Um, We don't know whether they got to Abraham Phelps' place, that's the name of the man who provided the butter, but they didn't return home, so a search was started for them. And it wasn't long before someone found them in a pond of water about six feet deep under some water lilies, which the presumption is attracted them to it. And it seems to have happened so many times in Australian history with kids. One gets into trouble, the other one tries to help them, and they both drown or they both get sucked into the quicksand or whatever Mm. it is that's entrapped them. Terrible tragedy. They might have gone in to get some flowers for their mum. Could have. Yeah. Yeah, and not realised that the water was so deep. It was six feet deep. Yeah, and of course kids in those days didn't swim, didn't have swimming lessons like we do now. I wonder how Henry Lawson heard about this to write the poem. Well, he was working at the time for a newspaper in Brisbane. And he may well have heard from there. Word would have got around the town very quickly because there was a search on. That means everybody gets involved in the search. As we see in some of the other uh, cases of kids missing in Australia, some massive searches uh, were held over the years. 
His poem starts, All is dark to us, the angels sing perhaps in paradise of the younger sister's danger and the elder's sacrifice. But the facts were hidden from us when the soft light from the moon glistened on the water lilies of the babies of Walloon. Mm. So he's assuming that one got into trouble and the other one went to help and also got into trouble. Mm. And what a tragedy. So that was one quite typical early settler's death. Yeah, it was, in a sense, because no one could work out what had happened. They'd been there with other siblings before. So what was it this time that caused them to go into the water? Was it that the flowers hadn't bloomed the last time they went there? Mm. Was it that they didn't realise the danger? Nobody knows. Mm. A million questions, especially for a parent who loses a child so tragically, and especially because most people who lose a child that way know that the answer are never going to be there. Now, this reminds me of a story from our Great Ocean Road book, because you were talking about the number of children's deaths. There is this grave on this horrendous piece of road, yeah. which you don't want Not to... that the Great Ocean Road's horrendous. No. It's just this little particular bit if you try and yeah. stop. If you're trying to look for the grave of these two little boys... It's so dangerous and perilous to try and find it that you've really better to go into the village and walk back to it. But what happened to them? Do you remember that one? Yeah, I do. They were the Lindsay boys who were victims of the Erskine River, which comes out at Lawn. So let's go back to 1849 when the settler Lindsay had arrived in the area. He recognised the quality of the timber in the area and got a licence to be a splitter, which means he, he split logs, basically. He built a house for his wife and two boys near where the river runs out to sea today. Terribly and tragically, in 1850, two of his sons, young William, who was eight, and Joseph, who was four, were drowned. Now, there are a number of versions of what happened to the boys. One is that they were swallowed up by quicksand, which was in the area where they were playing. The other is that they were drowned, that the river simply took them. And the third is that they were building a tunnel. You know how kids love to burrow into the sand and the tunnel collapsed on them. Suffocating. Uh, suffocating them, mm. yeah. It seems to me, though, that the real reason is that they drowned, and that's what's on the graves that are right beside the Great Ocean Road. It's and an interesting little grave, isn't it? It's a flat, big slab, and it's got a sort of an iron fence around it almost, doesn't it? Yeah, it has, and it's yeah. been there for many, many years. Yeah. It's seen a lot of traffic go past. And as you mentioned earlier, if you do go to see it, park up in Lawn and walk back down yeah. there because it's too hard to try and stop. Well, I don't reckon most people would even see it. You just drive past and don't realise that that's actually a grave. Yeah, unless you go looking for it, you probably wouldn't see yeah. it. Very, very sad. One of the ones I remember, which you can tell us more about, is the Duff children. Now, this had a happy ending, at least. But the reason I know about the three Duff children from Victoria is that I was doing a bit of study on Joan Lindsay's Picnic at Hanging Rock and looking at influences for Joan and her story of how she made these girls disappear into the rock and never to be seen again. And one of the so-called influences for her was the story of the Duff children, supposedly. So what's their story? Well, they set off from their home, which was in the northwest of Victoria, in the middle of August, which is cold. Mm. It's cold most of the time Mm. there, but it's particularly so then. They lived in that area, not that far from Horsham. The three of them set out to gather heath to make brooms and bring it home. It was late-ish in the day when they did that, and by the time it went dark, they hadn't returned. So their father set out to look for them. He went as long as he could that night and couldn't find anything. So the next morning, there was a huge search. The alarm was given. All the men in the area turned out. And for two days, the Saturday and Sunday, there were something like 36 men on horseback searching in a systematic way for these two kids. You wouldn't expect good news after two days in that bitterly cold weather, especially overnight. Three kids that aren't dressed for it. Yeah. Out there on their own. Well, when they did find the kids' tracks, 
Greeks, what they found was that when they left the area where they were gathering the heath, they went in exactly the opposite direction from where their home was, further away from safety with every step. I get that. I've got no sense of direction. That's what I would have done too. But it was the Indigenous trackers that helped, wasn't it? It was. Uh, Remember, these kids had nothing to eat and only water that they found on the ground to keep them going. Native trackers were brought in to help, and largely, thanks to them, the kids were found. So it was one girl and two boys, wasn't it? What were their ages? Yeah, it was, and the eldest was Isaac, he was nine. The middle one was Jane, who was seven, and Frank, the little bloke, was four. I mentioned that it was the Aboriginal trackers who were largely responsible for Mm. finding them. The bloke who actually found them was a fellow called King Richard. What became, I guess, more prominent over the years was the role that Jane, the sister, played in it. Mm. It was Jane who was mostly responsible for their survival by removing the reasonably heavy dress that she had on every night to cover them all to keep them alive. Mm. Now, they were out there for nine days and eight nights Mm. in those conditions. No food, only the water they found on the ground, and yet they survived. I mean, it's a miracle. It really is. Incredible story. They put up a memorial to her mm. just where the kids were found. It's still there mm. to this day. She led quite a long life. And I understand their story was included in the school curriculum for several decades. Yeah, when I was a kid at school in Victoria, they had the thing called the Reader. Um, And it was just a book of stories that you read and everybody read and taught you to read and it taught you how to make up stories and, you know, they were great. And you get a new one each year. Kids would say, in our fifth grade reader. So they put her story in the reader from 1930 until the 60s uh, when they disappeared. Mm. So she was certainly remembered. Can you imagine what it must have been like when they were found and found alive? I mean, who would have believed that? The relief for that family. But isn't it bizarre too that by foot they could wander so far and be so lost? Absolutely. But it's so easy to do in the bush Mm. out there. The bush is unforgiving. It doesn't give back easily people who wander off the track. Mm. And I know from my own times in the scrub, you think you know where you're going, you get to where you think you should be and you're not. Yeah. And it's interesting you should say that, again, that's one of the themes of Picnic at Hanging Rock because the land is taking revenge on these European women, yeah. their quiddle and skirts and their white straw hats and their white dresses and clothing that are so unsuitable for these invaders. Yeah, absolutely. Just by the way, there's a painting in the art gallery in Melbourne by S.T. Gill, which is about the finding of the children, black on horseback. There's the kids on the mm. ground with the, the covering over them. It's a great painting. And there are a few around like that. The other one that I always remember is McCubbin's painting called Lost. Oh, the, yeah. You remember that of the little girl standing in the forest yeah. with these huge trees and she's just clearly lost. If anyone's ever been to Dublin, yeah. where they've got the Irish famine Oh, the, the long, statue. tall, thin people. Yeah, yeah. the statue's so much more dramatic because it's a group of starving people, but they're so elongated by their height and thinness that it's quite a daunting statue. Yeah. And Lost is a little bit the same. It's this little girl and she's completely overpowered by the bush. So that's where we started <laughs> the story, how the Lost children were represented in so many forms. And the McCubbin painting, yep. literature as well, obviously. Oh, yes, and numbers of poems, yeah. um, not only by Patterson and Lawson, but others as well. But it always seems to me that the one that probably sticks in people's mind the most resulted from a little kid lost in 1960. The name Stephen Walls will ring a lot of bells. Mm, I don't know that. He disappeared in the New England Rangers. Is part of a song that was written about the search for Stephen Walls. He was on his father's farm, not far from Gyra, one Friday morning. His dad was in the car rounding up some cattle that had got away. His father returned to the car from heading up a couple of strays 
and young Stephen was gone. Oh, God. Uh, he just disappeared. He was four years old, and he just went walkabout. The area that he disappeared in, the only word you could use to describe it would be treacherous. The grass was about a metre high. That hid swamps and trenches oh. and dingoes and snakes. But this search grew to amazing proportions. There was something like 500 men out looking for him. They brought in five aircraft Uh, as well to look for this little bloke who was wandering around in the scrub. He was missing for two nights and they thought he wouldn't survive a third given the conditions and he was only four. Mm. Um, But on the morning of that fourth day, despite the odds, Stephen Walls was found alive and well and happy. And the first words he said to the rescuers was, where's my daddy? Where's my daddy? Mm. And that became the most memorable lines out of a song that was written by a bloke called Johnny Ashcroft, who was an entertainer around the clubs and pubs at that time about the rescue of of Stephen Walls. Was he a bit of a country crooner, was he? Oh, yeah, he was well known, Johnny Ashcroft. I'm not sure he had many huge hits, but he was certainly well known around the club circuit. And this song then, I think you mentioned, became a huge hit. It did. And again, it just tells you about the affinity, I suppose, we have with the bush and kids going lost in it. This topped the charts for longer than the two other hits at that time, which people would remember. Time a Kangaroo Down Sport. Oh, classic. Which was a number one for three weeks. And The Pub With No Beer. Oh, another classic. Uh, which was a, only a one-week wonder at number one. But Little Boy Lost, which uh, Johnny Ashcroft's song was called, held the number one spot for six weeks. Good grief. Very, very during classics. Now, tragic thing about this is it was another lost child that took the song off the airways. Yeah, right at the time when the song was at the peak of its success, another little kid in Sydney went missing. Eight-year-old Graham Thorne disappeared on his way to school at Bellevue Hill. For three weeks, Sydney was shocked as the search for young Graham continued. His father, Basil, you may remember, mm. had won first prize in the Sydney Opera House Lottery. Mm. And the kidnapper of his son was demanding a ransom. Now, Johnny Ashcroft was aware, he must have been a fairly compassionate sort of a bloke, because he was aware enough to realise that uh, hearing Little Boy Lost, which was getting massive radio play at the time, must have been terrible for Graham's family and friends. And so he asked all the radio stations in Australia to stop playing it. What a selfless act when you've got a number one hit that could make you financially well off for the rest of your career to be so compassionate. Yeah. I think everyone should have gone out and bought a copy and just had it at home. Well, EMI was the company that produced the record and they agreed with him that that's what should have happened. There were still two other versions made, one for the States and one for Britain, and there were still record sales, but every radio station in Australia stop playing it. Mm. And Graham Thorne, little boy story, so tragic, it's in our Sydney volume. To win the lotto and then to lose your child, you just give that money back a thousand times. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, in a lot of ways, the involvement with lost kids in this country still continues. Mm. There was a bloke called Peter Pearce who wrote a book called The Country of Lost Children, An Australian Anxiety. And we kind of still have that, but the kids may not necessarily these days have been lost in the bush. Mm. And they've gone missing for other reasons. Mm. And if you wonder whether blokes like Banjo Patterson and Henry Lawson and Johnny Ashcroft would have been writing poems and, and songs about missing kids if they were still here, then undoubtedly the answer is they would, because you only have to look at the amount of kids that are missing in this mm. country to realise that it should still be a central passion of us all. Well, historically, let's look at some of the kids that have, before my time, but I can remember the Beaumont kids that went missing off the beach, was it? Yeah, Jane, Anna and Grant disappeared from a beach in Adelaide. Yeah. Then you have Joanne Ratcliffe and Kirsty Gordon disappeared in 1973. The Beaumonts went in 1966. Craig Taylor, 73. 
Azaria Chamberlain disappeared in 1980 and so on, right through to William Tyrrell, who we still see stories about today, disappeared 2014. Yeah. So the kids are still going missing. You know, I can remember when I was a young girl getting a book of poetry given to me, and it was gorgeous. It was the poems of Banjo Patterson. It was <laughs> illustrated by Pro Hart. Okay. It was magnificent and lost was such a dramatic poem. He ought to be home, said the old man. That yeah, one? Yeah, that one. It? I do. Yeah. That was the story about the kid who disobeyed his mother yeah. and went riding in the bush on the horse that was hard to ride and hit a tree and was killed. So where are the girls buried? Okay, they're in the Ipswich Cemetery and they're not hard to find. You go in off Cemetery Road through the gateway that's there, go down a couple of gravel roads to your right, turn right, and you can't miss them. It's a beautiful grave that was renewed by the Ipswich City Council in 2015. has the two girls holding hands either side of the headstone, which is hard to miss. The other thing you can do is go to the Henry Lawson Bicentennial Park in Walloon, where there's a statue of the two girls dancing with each other as well. And it's beautiful there because there's a river of tiles effect that they're dancing around. It's absolutely beautiful. And I think a verse also appears on the grave as well, doesn't it? A verse of Henry's poem? Yeah, it does. There's a verse on there and there's also, I think, most of it on the one in the park. I often think that maybe the sentiment of Henry Lawson's Babies of Walloon is applicable to a lot of these kids, especially people like William Tyrrell who Mm -hmm. have gone in such mysterious circumstances and we can't find them. He wrote, speak their names in tones that linger just as though you held them dear. There are eyes to which the mention of these names will bring a tear. Little Kate and Bridget, straying in an autumn afternoon, were attracted by the lilies in the water of Walloon. If you have enjoyed today's episode of Grave Tales, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute and give us a good rating. You have been listening to a story from Grave Tales, a series available in paperback, ebook, and select titles on audiobook, music by Kai Engels. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram or on our website. Check out our YouTube channel as well. Or put together your own group and come along on our Great Ocean Road Tour.